1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Free money for all sounds enticing, but how is the idea of universal basic income, intended to protect the poor and marginalised in society, working out in practice? and some jaunty new looks for beards in a remote part of Pakistan. Our Asia editor will be letting us in on a new trend. First up though. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has long been a pinup for liberals around the world, but now he's facing calls within his own country to resign.
2: Justin Trudeau simply cannot continue to govern this country now that Canadians know what he has done.
1: Critics of Mr Trudeau, like opposition leader Andrew Scheer, argue he's guilty of political meddling to protect a big construction company named SNC-Lavalin from prosecution. Today, a former aide is expected to testify against Mr Trudeau
3: in the Parliamentary Justice Committee. It's absolutely the biggest crisis that the Trudeau government has faced.
1: Madeline Drowan is our Canada correspondent based out of Ottawa.
3: And the timing is terrible because there's an election coming up in October and it doesn't give the government very much time to turn the page on this.
1: Madeline, there are lots of moving parts in this scandal, but how
3: did it start? SNC-Lavalin is a big uh, construction company that has operations all over the world, and it has been charged with paying bribes to officials in the Libyan government in order to get construction contracts there. And how did that turn into a controversy
1: that's pulled in the prime minister?
3: Well, the first indication that Canadians got that something was a little bit odd was when uh, Justin Trudeau demoted his... uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General in January. There was no good explanation given for this demotion, and people thought it was a little bit odd. And then journalists started sniffing around, and there was a a fairly explosive news report that came out at the beginning of February that explained the demotion for everyone. Now, this news report just quoted anonymous sources, but basically what it said was that Mr. Trudeau and his officials had put inappropriate pressure on the Attorney General to change her decision in the case of SNC-Lavalin. Now, SNC-Lavalin is a big international construction company. It's also politically important in Quebec, which is always something that you have to keep an eye on in Canadian politics.
1: And why is this particularly important in Quebec and so important to Justin Trudeau in the first place?
3: SNC-Lavalin employs about 9,000 people in Quebec, and it is also a very politically plugged-in company. But Trudeau has said from the beginning that he's very worried uh, that if this case goes to trial, that the company might go under, or it might be purchased by another company, and those jobs would be lost and the headquarters move out of Canada. But he isn't suggesting that they be let off completely. What he wanted the attorney general to do was to give them a deferred prosecution agreement. And uh, these are things that uh, you you can get them in the UK and in the US as well, where the company uh, admits responsibility for wrongdoing, cooperates with the government and usually pays a hefty fine. And how do
1: Canadian people feel about this on the whole?
3: The problem with uh, letting SNC-Lavalin off with a fine is too many people uh, see that as sort of them escaping justice. And so the majority of Canadians actually want SNC-Lavalin to go to a criminal trial because they perceive the alternative um, as letting them off the hook too easily. Now, as matters stand right now, uh, Mr Trudeau has not overturned the original decision of his former Attorney General, so that trial is still going to go ahead.
1: How plausible are Mr Trudeau's denials here that his behaviour was not in any way improper?
3: Well, Mr Trudeau hasn't helped his case at all because his denials have all been a little bit sort of spotty. Uh,
2: At no time did I or uh, my office... Uh, direct uh, the current or previous Attorney General uh, to make uh, any particular decision in this matter.
3: He hasn't really laid out the full timetable of what happened and who did what when. So what he's saying is that, yes, he raised this issue with Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Attorney General, and it was mostly because he wanted to make sure that the company, Asensi-Lavalin, didn't go under. He was worried about jobs. But then in we later found out from her testimony that, in fact, politics was raised in some of these sessions. Then, to my surprise,
0: the clerk stated, or started to make the case for the need for a DPA. He said, quote, there is a board meeting on Thursday, September the
3: 20th with stockholders, end quote. Quote again, they will likely be moving to London if this happens and there is an election in Quebec soon, end quote. At that point, the prime minister jumped in stressing that there is an election in Quebec and that, quote, I am an MP in Quebec, the member for Papineau, end quote. And that puts an entirely different shade on things. And Mr Trudeau has not come out with a full accounting of that. And he has
1: lost some cabinet members close to him and a very close aide trying to limit the damage. How's that going down?
3: When the former attorney general resigned, that was damaging for the the liberal government. She was seen as a very competent minister to begin with. She was also Indigenous, which is important to this particular government, which has elevated the uh, Indigenous issues as part of its its brand. So that resignation was definitely damaging. But what has made this into a full-blown crisis is the resignation just this week of Jane Philpott, Uh, another very senior very competent woman in the uh, Trudeau government and she was very explicit in her resignation that she had lost confidence in the government so that has proved to be the much heavier blow.
1: You've interviewed him on a number of occasions how do you think he'll
3: handle this as we go forward? Trudeau is often very good when he's backed into a corner um even before he was elected leader and prime minister, he stunned everyone by taking on a much bigger opponent in a charity boxing match and managed to win. But I'm anticipating that he will have something up his sleeve here that he's going to try to present to the Canadian public and try to turn the page on this.
1: Madeline, thanks very much for joining us. My
3: pleasure.
2: The government
4: here is now paying citizens a salary just for being citizens. It's called a
2: universal basic income. Jobs
0: guarantee exploration of a universal basic income.
2: Tech evangelists have a dramatic solution. It's called universal basic income. (laughs) like,
0: woo, universal basic income. Everybody, let's get talking about it. From leftist
1: activists to libertarian techies, there's fresh interest in the idea of a basic
4: income, a concept that could drastically overhaul the welfare state. It's a regular payment that's made by the state to ordinary citizens, regardless of how rich or poor they are, whether they're in work, whether they're looking for work, or unemployed and quite happily unemployed. Rachna Schonberg is economics correspondent here at The Economist. The idea is that everybody should be able to receive a minimum level of income. <coughs> While a basic income has
1: never been rolled out on a national basis, a number of countries have trialled some version of the idea. Italy is the latest. Today, applications open for its citizens' income, available to pensioners, the poor and the unemployed. But why has the idea of a basic income attracted so much attention over the last
4: decade? Well, if you think about the years leading up to the financial crisis swathes of the population in America and in Britain, for example, didn't really experience much wage growth. And we saw a rise in people in precarious jobs. And the fear is that as more and more jobs begin to be automated, that precariousness will increase. And so people are rethinking what the welfare system should be like. Tell me a bit more about the proponents of UBI, as it's known. One of the really interesting things about basic income is it has support across the political spectrum Left-leaning types like it because it helps reduce poverty and raises living standards. More right-wing thinkers might like it because it helps deal with the problems of technological change. You've got socialists, left-leaning governments in Europe willing to give it a try. You've got Silicon Valley types bringing attention to it. So Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, for example. It does seem to have support across the spectrum. And what do those on the other side of the argument have to say about it? The opponents will say this is unaffordable or would require um, very large raises in taxes. And also what happens to people's incentives to work? You know, what if it has this sort of corrosive effect morally and encourages them just to lay about? But if universal basic
1: income, just help me out here, if it's meant to give dignity to those who are struggling, whose wage levels are low or can't access good quality paid work, why give
4: it to everyone else? I think part of the idea is that everybody should be able to gain from a government's tax receipts. So everybody has an equal stake in society and we should all receive the same basic level of income. And I think the other thought behind it is if you start withdrawing that income at certain points, then you might be swaying people's decision about whether to go into work or not, whether to undertake education or not. And so keep it universal. And so are there any real world examples to learn from right now and where would they be? There are a couple of more limited versions of basic income schemes. For example, in Italy today, applications begin for the Citizens Income Scheme, which was promised by the Five Star Movement, one of the parties that's part of Italy's governing coalition. So it's more targeted, it's not universal. It will be paid to people who are unemployed, to those on low incomes, and to pensioners as well. There's an element of conditionality. So if you're out of work, you have to be looking for work, you have to accept. one of the first three job offers that you receive. And so again, it's a shift away from universality. It sounds a bit like unemployment benefit. A shift away would imply
1: that universal basic income could be something a government might pick and choose bits from. Am
4: I right? Or should it be the full deal? I think when Five Star made its promises, it was hoping to implement the full deal. But, you know, once you come into government, you realise that there are practical constraints here. It's quite an expensive policy to offer. Italy's always engaged in battles with the European Commission when it comes to the budget deficit that it wants to run. And it's got a huge public debt burden. And so I think as reality hit, perhaps the eventual scheme has become something, as you say, a bit more like an unemployment benefit scheme.
1: You can clearly see the signalling around that from a political point of view, but what do you reckon? Will it work? Will it be a success?
4: More money in people's pockets will be a good thing for the economy. It will raise living standards. But the question is, you know, if one of the aims is to improve employment, it depends on how the scheme's designed and whether the unemployed are receiving the support to get those job offers. And the other question is, when you've got limited resources, you know, could the money have been targeted better? Will there be people who, for example, are working in the informal economy, which is pretty big in Italy, that might actually be earning above the poverty level? And could that basic income have been going to somebody else? Italy at the moment has a bit of an eccentric
1: uh, political economy in European terms. Are there other places that we
4: could also look to for perhaps a more settled example? There have been pilots in other countries as well, Canada and in Scotland. Finland ran a two year experiment, and the results of the first year of that experiment um, were published a few weeks ago. They found that basic income payments didn't really change people's incentives to find work, although they were less stressed. That, again, was a limited variant of a basic income scheme because it was only paid to unemployed people. So, again, it's not this ideal that people tend to talk about. There are a couple of other trials that are still ongoing that I think are really interesting. So there's one by GiveWell being run in Kenya where they're giving people a basic income for 12 years, which is a really long time. So Mm -hmm. they can look at what that does to people's incentives to work, to save, what that does for gender empowerment, what it does to communities as a whole. And I think that will be really interesting, but we won't know the results for a while to come. Indeed, that
1: that sounds very intriguing, doesn't it? And What do you think about the success and failure of schemes like Finland or Italy? Do you see other governments thinking, I've got to put something in place or at least be trialling something like that? Is it piquing curiosity?
4: I'm not sure that The fact of Italy or Finland in itself is piquing curiosity. I think the basic income idea just has a lot of momentum behind it. In America, you've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez backing the idea. You've got the opposition party in India promising a minimum income for the poor. So I think people want to find ways to fix the welfare system and they're willing to make promises about them.
1: We haven't heard the last of UBI. Definitely not. Thanks very much for joining us, Rechna. Thanks, sir. noticed something interesting happening in northwest pakistan what is it
2: yes well something intriguing is playing out on the faces of the citizens of northwest pakistan it's their facial hair men in the region it's a conservative rural region of pakistan they've, they've always worn beards, like many good muslims do but the beards are getting a little bit more elaborate there's something they call the French beard, which I don't think many French people would recognise. There's the L pattern, the J pattern. There's goatees. Beards are going crazy in, in this part of Pakistan.
1: In beard terms, northwest Pakistan is clearly right out there.
2: Why? Well, it's a poor region, a rural region. It's, it's right along the border with Afghanistan until really only one or two years ago it had been racked by violence the the Pakistani offshoot of the of the Taliban was uh, very strongly entrenched there there was a long civil war in effect in the region uh, before the army reasserted control so there's a sense that this is the first kind of moment of peace where young people have had a chance to sort of express themselves. And uh, according to our correspondent, barbers in the, in the cities in the region say that a good sort of two-thirds of customers request fancy beards rather than just a standard trim. So it's, it's clearly something that reaches beyond just the sort of net savvy.
1: And there's also quite serious background to some of the choices, elements of protest or memorialising.
2: That's right. So so this area is a strongly Pashtun area ethnically and in the rest of Pakistan the Pashtun because of this civil war against the Pakistani Taliban in the rest of Pakistan the Pashtun are sort of associated with with the Taliban and are often sort of fingered for no reason by the police as potential terrorists or at any rate hit up for bribes. And Pashtun people both in in the region and around Pakistan have rebelled against this. And and one of the cases that sort of triggered this popular protest was the very sad case of a of a young guy called Nakibullah Mesud who had very fancy facial hair, was clearly not some kind of terrorist. In fact, he was an inspiring model. But the police sort of framed him. He was, he was shot dead in what they said was an encounter with terrorists. And it seems possible that um, some of the new beards are a homage to him in effect, a form of protest sort of associating with this young guy who was basically targeted for his ethnicity.
1: And is everyone getting on board with this trend or are there some social cultural holdouts?
2: Oh, well, there are are definitely holdouts. The question is just how vain you're allowed to be in your facial hair. As one of the barbers interviewed by our correspondents said, fashion is sin, which again will come as news to the French. So if you're very doctrinaire, you might think that anything other than a straightforward, big, hairy, bushy, kind of untrimmed beard is some sort of frippery, a frivolity that, that doesn't have any place in a good Muslim society. There are certainly some sort of extremist imams in the region who argue that, but it it seems like they're on the the losing side of facial hair history.
1: Clean-shaven Ed McBride, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. Jason's back in the chair tomorrow.